What happens when the world gets turned on its head? We're forced to look inward, perhaps become fearful, sometimes lash out at others. While there are others in the world who don't give up hope because they believe in people. Join me, Kevin Tibbles and Amy Goldberg, for our new podcast, Believe in People, where we meet those who don't give up hope. The name of today's guest may not be known to you, but his story most certainly is. He is Billy Hayes, main character in the Oscar-winning film Midnight Express. Billy was arrested in the 1970s for smuggling hash and sent to a Turkish prison where he languished until his ultimate escape. We'll find out how Billy survived those years and what inner strengths kept him alive. Welcome to Believe in People. Before we dive into what happened that fateful day when you were arrested in Turkey, let's work backwards. What motivates and inspires you these days? Well, I've uh, finished writing my recent book during the uh, pandemic. So that was inspiring, something to do. And I wanted to sort of wrap up my long, strange tale and the uh, book is also a tribute to my parents, who um, kind of saved me in so many ways. I'm, I'm such a lucky guy. I had such good, strong parents who raised me in a way that sort of prepared me for prison, strange as that sounds. <laughs> <laughs> is there any way to compare? Uh, maybe this is a bit of a stretch, but I mean, we've all been under lockdown for you know more than two years now. That doesn't compare with a Turkish prison, but psychologically, do you do you see any comparisons? Well, I find it interesting, and I've had a lot of folks ask me something similar. What's it like for you to be uh, be locked down? The difference is between locked down and locked up. <laughs> when you're locked down, <laughs> you can go out the door. When you're locked up, you can't do that. And for me, actually, I. Strangely enough, I enjoyed the isolation of the pandemic. Of course, the, the grief and the pain that it's caused and all the problems that it's still causing are there. But I, I liked the quiet streets and uh, I kind of enjoyed just being in my head and working and writing every day. And Wendy is an incredible, my wife is an incredible cook. So she had a chance to, that's the difference between jail too. It's much better cook <laughs> here at home. <laughs> and, but obviously, the fact that you know, I've been doing theater for seven years, doing my uh, Riding the Midnight Express with Billy Hayes, my one man show, which of course that stopped like everything else in the world. Vegas, in particular, was just devastated because the town is built on entertainment. So that yeah, was it must have been a ghost town. It was, it was it in many ways. And Billy, I know that. Uh, it, oh, go ahead, Kevin. 
Well, I was just going to say when um, we're talking about you and your experiences in a Turkish prison after uh, having been busted, um, you talked about the strength of family that that kept you going through that. Um, in today's world, you know, there are a lot of shattered families, especially as a result of COVID. How you, you alluded to the fact that your family was very important. What sorts of strengths? Do you think we should all all should be able to get from our families? Well, what I would hope is that everyone has the same loving family that I had. Um, um, but I discovered early on in life that that's not the case. It took me a little while to realize that other people's parents weren't as open and truthful and loving and disciplined in many ways as as mine were, and they created a a confidence in me in terms of my ability to to deal with what what life brings. Uh, I didn't quite expect all that it did, but um, just to know that they were on the outside too, to know my dad, who was such a proud man, to have his son locked up and have him humiliated in the papers, you know, drugs. I was smuggling hashish, which is cannabis which is now legal most places in the world. And it's found to have incredible healing properties, etc. Back then, it was a drug and it was a terrible thing. And that was, I, I burdened my parents with that. And of course, to have my mom go to sleep every night with pain in her heart because her son was so far away was, that was the worst part of jail. <laughs> that was part of the process that, again, prison was, the worst and the best thing that ever happened to me. It, it forced me to grow up, to take responsibility for my actions. I learned about strengths and weaknesses. I discovered my reason for being. All sorts of wonderful things happened that I needed to have happened for me to grow up in prison. But, you know, I kept thinking after a year, well, good, I, I've learned my lessons, time to go. And then after two years, well, now I've learned my lesson, time to go. And then three years, and then four years. And by five years, I was just desperate. And desperate men do desperate things. And I got very lucky and managed to escape and come home and sort of help bring my folks back into life in a way that they didn't have to have their son home again. And that, that made me feel so good. It's hard for me to even talk about it 50 years later considering yeah. the pain I put my family through. And, and Billy, if you don't mind, and we just, you just mentioned it, but if you don't mind, for those listeners who are not familiar with your story, could, could you give us sort of the, uh, a brief iteration on, on what that was for you? Because you, I, I, particularly in the case of learning, the learnings that you discovered. Well, I, I was arrested at Istanbul Airport on October 7th, 1970, with two kilos of hashish, cannabis, take them to my arms. And I was originally sentenced to four years and two months. And then after several years and several escape attempts that didn't work, uh, I decided my best friend came to help me escape and he was killed in the process. And I decided I've caused enough grief, wrecked my own life and forced my parents and my family to go through this. And now my best friend is dead. And I turned the escape switch off, which made prison a completely different place. I had about two more years of time to do. and. I was able to do my time in a way that was profitable for me. Um, 
I had the book, Light on Yoga, the classic book by BKS Iyengar that came from the East to the West and really brought yoga to the West. I had that book in my backpack while I was being arrested at the airport. Wow. And yoga saved my life. I mean, literally saved my life in jail every day. And it still does. I've done yoga every day since the middle of 1969. And that to me was the most important lesson that I needed to learn in jail. And yoga brought that to me. In prison, you have no control over anything except yourself. And yoga gives you tools to help control yourself. And I so needed that in prison. Physically, I was young. I was healthy. I was a sportsman and that kind of stuff. So that was easy. But emotionally, I was a basket case and got more so. And in jail, if you don't control your emotions, you have to deal with the consequences. And the consequences in prison can be a lot more severe than even on the outside. So yoga saved me in prison. And it still does now. How so? I mean, it doesn't, did, did it, is it, is it a, a way of disciplining yourself? Is that what you get through yoga or is it a way to detach yourself? No, I, I, not so much detach as I think as connect to, uh, to learn about physically, emotionally, mentally, all connected. And if you're emotionally upset, you can do physical exercises to help balance that. You can balance by your breathing techniques. You can balance all of the whirling stuff that's going on in your mind, in your, in your emotions. You can bring them down into your body and realize you do have control. Things happen. We decide what they mean. We decide how we're going to allow them to affect us or not. And in jail, there's a lot of reasons why you don't want to let the things around you affect you. So it's not so much as detaching as just interconnections with what's important and a way of viewing what's happening around you. Um, I, when I meditate, I go to a place that's not so much detached as I search for stillness at center. And I have a variety of techniques that I do and things that I say and breathing exercises that I do that will allow me to slowly move into the stillness at center that is, um, it refreshes me. It, it balances me in a way that I desperately need. Like my inner gyroscope could be spinning around and that, working to find that stillness at center settles me down and I need to be settled down. <laughs> and Bill, Billy, did you find that anybody else embraced that practice in prison? Yes, actually quite a few people saw me doing, uh, cause I had the book light on yoga and I would go downstairs in the morning, basically before the rest of the prison woke. I'm very early rise still am, And I would spread a blanket or I had, sometimes I had a mesh rug. They didn't have real good yoga mats like they do these days. <laughs> and I practice my yoga down. And it's a little weird just because when you're doing yoga, you know, you're rolling around on your back. You've got your legs at the air. You're doing all these postures that aren't necessarily uh, good to be doing in a place like a prison. But at the same time, you don't have a choice. They don't let you go out onto the beach and practice your yoga every morning. Luckily for me, I was sort of... I was insulated from 
the violence of prison in a way because my very first night I got into a fight with a prison trustee, kind of a smurmy guy who sold drugs. And one thing led to another. And I used to be uh, very fast and I used to do martial arts and such. And one thing led to another. And I hit this guy in the face and bang, he went down and his nose was bleeding and he screaming for the guards who rushed in and dragged me out. I was trying to explain. I don't speak Turkish yet. They don't speak English. No, he woke me up. He hit me first. All they know is new guy, first night in a fight. <laughs> Lesson needs to be taught. And they have a form of punishment in Turkey and in the Middle East called palaka, where they tie your ankles up and they beat your feet with whippy stick. And it hurts like a mother. Again, I was screaming and kicking and they were hitting my hands and I thought they were killing me. Turns out it wasn't really a bad beating. Nothing broken. <laughs> Nothing's broken. That's not a bad beating. If they break something and they keep you there and beat you the next day, that's a really bad beating. What it was was an effective lesson about fighting in prison. You and I get in a fight, Kev, and the guards come in and I'm all bloody. They're going to beat you bloody equally. Or if you're all bloody, they'll beat me bloody equally. So you can't really win. But what that did for me was this guy who was sort of a big deal in prison. He walked around the prison for a week or two with this big black eye and a swollen face. And everyone said, you know, what happened to Ziad? And they said, oh, the, the new guy, Willie, which is my name. Willie, you know, and then they see Willie, who, you know, I'm not real big and such. as like that guy. But they still think, well, you know, if they're going to mess with someone, there's somebody easy. Let's find somebody else. And it kind of held me instead. But people didn't bother me so much. Hmm. But do you, you, never, you never lost hope? Uh, no, I kept, I kept believing because I'm a basic optimist that I would get out. I would get out one way or the other. Then when I was counting down the days with my calendar at 56, 55, 54 days when the sentence got changed to life in prison, suddenly everything changed. And all, of the, all of the life lessons that I learned, all the yoga practices that I learned to stay calm and stay controlled were, were sorely put to the test because now it's not like I'm counting down days to get out. I'm looking at the rest of my life in jail. And that flipped the switch for escape back on. I didn't lose my yoga. I didn't lose my control. I just focused it on getting out. And it took a while, um, but eventually I was able to get to this island prison and 17 miles off the coast. And we work during the day. It's an open, half open prison. And the prisoners work and carry produce and such from the boats that come from the mainland. And we unload the produce. And then they had a canning factory on the island where the prison was. Cheap labor. And we would work doing that. But the boats that came from the mainland weren't allowed to spend the night in the harbor because it's a prison island. But one day I noticed when a storm out at sea was so bad, the boats anchored there during the afternoon. They weren't leaving. And each boat had a little dinghy tied behind it. At first, I thought about swimming. And I used to be an ocean lifeguard and I'm a swimmer. But 17 miles is a long ways, especially after five years in jail. But the little dinghy, I knew that was my way out. So I waited for a storm and I had arranged to get past night bed check, which is a long story you don't need, but I was able to get out to the boat and cut the rope on the dinghy and rowed to the mainland of Asia Minor all night and then 
hit the beach when the sun was coming up and then spend the next three days running through Turkey and getting back to Istanbul, dyeing my hair, my mustache, which was all blonde back then, and then making my way to the Greek border where I knew if I could get across the river into Greece, the Greeks would never send me back to Turkey. They've been mortal enemies for a thousand years. It's not for hashish. Now, if I killed someone, that's different. Aside from the moral karmic implications of killing another human being, legally, I wouldn't be free anywhere. I'd have to go you know, hide out in Uruguay or somewhere. But I knew if I could get across that river into Greece, that I'd be okay. And that's what I did. I made my way across Turkey and actually crossed a minefield, which I didn't realize until afterwards when, when the Greeks found <laughs> That's, that's, I, that's I a good thing, probably. Yeah, yeah, that was quite a surprise. I swam across the river. Again, I'm a swimmer. That's not the problem. And I am determined. I'd swim a thousand miles because I'm getting free. And when I got it to the other shore, I, the river has shifted over. The border between Turkey and Greece has shifted because the river has changed. I wasn't exactly sure that I was in Greece. And I didn't want to run up to the first guy and have him be a Turkish border guard. So I spent the night wandering through the woods. And then finally, early in the morning, as the sun was coming up behind me, I got onto a little dirt road, which I shouldn't be on, but it felt so good on my feet because I had taken off my shoes and socks. I'm on the Turkish side of the river thinking that I heard dogs. I think I'd bury my shoes and socks and dogs would find them and would blow out their noses. But I was walking around barefoot now, but I didn't care. I was so close. My feet are all chewed up. I don't care. And I swam the river. And when I got into Greece, I wandered around. And then when I got to little dirt road, I, I knew I shouldn't be on it, but it felt good on my feet. And up ahead through the trees, I said, I'll get back into the woods. And I walked past what was like a wooden kiosk, like an outhouse. And suddenly this bayonet slashed down in front of me and some, some guard yelled something. And I, and I didn't understand him. And he yelled again. And I realized, I don't understand him. I speak good Turkish at this point, which means he's speaking Greek, which means I made it. I made it. I collapsed on the ground. And all the soldiers came around me with their pistols and their flashlights. And this guy stuck his pistol in my face and said, who are you? Who are you? He said, I'm an American. I just escaped from Turkey. The Greeks kept me in a little room in the woods while they figured out what to do with me. I could do 10 days standing on my head after five years in Turkey. And then they, they did the nicest thing they could do. They deported me as being literally a bad influence on the youth of Greece, which I love because it's the same charge against Socrates. That's a, that's a nice <laughs> That's incredible. Billy, what, uh, why did they yeah. overturn your original uh, sentence? Uh, there were various reasons. The, there's a process in Turkey where like one court will stamp something and another court will stamp something. I didn't have my final stamp, my final tusty, as it's called, from the high, high court in Ankara. And Richard Nixon was pressuring Turkey. This is the start of the war on drugs. And Nixon was pressuring Turkey and all the other countries that the U.S. gave money to, which was everybody, of course, to increase their drug penalties. And the Turks said, fine, you don't think we're handing out the right drug sentences? We'll show you. And what they did was Impose these draconian sentences on fools like me who were smuggling and a couple of, unfortunately, American women and another guy who soon after me also received life sentences for hashish, for cannabis. <laughs> you know, the day I was sentenced, I had a life sentence that the judge, the only choice the judge had, he could lower my sentence to 30 years, which he did. Life, 30 years, <laughs> all about the same. But when I came back from court that day, there was a guy who murdered two people 
And he also got 30 years. So he got 15 years for each person that he shot. And I got 15 years for each kilo of hash that I smuggled. It didn't seem to be a balance there. Do you think, uh, I don't, this is, do you think about Brittany Griner, the basketball player who is in the Russian jail right now for having supposed cannabis oil? Uh, yeah. Vaping or something? I mean, what, what do you think she's going through? Interesting. I actually did an interview um, with Ashley Banford, um, a woman, a host of a radio show, who she Banfield. said the moment. Banfield, yeah, yes. Banfield. She, she did an interview with me a week or two ago when all of this stuff really broke and asked me. She said, you know, when I heard about her, in Turkey, the first thing in Russia, the first thing I thought about was Billy Hayes did that express. And at 10 o'clock in the morning, they called me, and by you know, two o'clock, I was doing the interview, telling them what my experience was and how it might relate to where, where Brittany is. And the biggest question was, what advice might you have for Brittany and/or her family? And yeah. of course, that's it's so difficult because no matter what I say, it really doesn't affect her and her life. But I kind of said what I told you guys earlier, which you have no control in jail over anything except yourself. And I think Brittany has a control. In fact, I know she has a control over herself. She's an Olympic basketball star. She's an athlete. She knows her body. She's controlled her body. And it looked to me that she also has control of her emotions. It seems that she's holding steady here. Obviously, it's a terrible situation. Um, I'm hoping that now that they finish with the official, I know she's pleaded guilty and they're finishing the official paperwork and such without which nothing happens in Turkey or Russia or anywhere else. But I'm hoping that because of that, that she will be either traded for this uh, Russian gentleman, (laughs) a word I'm using very loosely, and she's brought home. And meanwhile, the world is watching. The good thing for her is I don't think she's going to suffer abuse in a way that maybe if she was alone somewhere and nobody knew about her, she's on her own. The world is watching now. She has a name. and Hopefully, this publicity will either allow or force the Russians to let her come home. I don't think this is going... She's a political pawn right now, but I, I think it's from value to Russia is going to diminish as the world sees what they're doing and holding her. You know, I... I think she had this vape in her bag inadvertently. She, it's not like she was coming to smuggle it. I was smuggling. It's obvious. I wish, actually, since I got a life sentence anyway, I wish from the first get-go, I said, I was asleep at the airport. Somebody taped the hash under my arms. That's my story, and I'm sticking with it. They gave me life <laughs> anyway. What difference would it have made? <laughs> I'm hoping that she comes out of this and soon. And, um, boy, if she does yoga, she... She really needs to do it in jail. She must be so afraid. That, that fear, yes. it, it just must be overpowering. Yes, and that's part of what she needs to be able to control. Go ahead, Amy. The, the yes. fact that she has the ability to, to control her body as an athlete and control her mind as a human being and as someone who, she has a discipline, much more so than most people. To be an athlete, you, you do. And she can turn that discipline towards uh, her own fear. Of course, it's frightening. She doesn't know what's going to happen. We're here talking about 
hopefully best case scenarios. Truth is, we really don't know what she's going through over there. Uh, from the look on her face, watching her come in and out, I think she's okay. Uh, you know, relative term, okay. And I, I hope she gets out and home before the stress gets too much because once it stress kills, and boy, there's a lot of stress in jail. Hmm. Mentioning stress, Billy, then how did you navigate that stress when you got home? Because now you had to really wrap your head around you were in prison, you escaped, and then they made a film. So you had to revisit that whole thing again. How did you how did you do that? Uh, I got home on a Friday. There were a hundred reporters at, at Kennedy Airport asking questions. Billy, Billy, what's it like to be home? I don't know. I just got here. I haven't even seen my mom. <laughs> Never stopped. Literally, I'm still obviously talking and answering questions about this experience. But most guys getting out of prison don't want to talk about it. And they, they kind of bury it and hide it, which psychologically is devastating. I would have done the same. I'd still be procrastinating about writing my first book, Midnight Express. But I get home on a Friday. By Monday, I was meeting with literary agents. I had no money. I owed my dad, who had borrowed money to keep me in jail. So I needed to do something. And, you know, track record for five years of the previous employment, the past, past five years, convict. That doesn't get you a lot of work. And I've been a writer. You know, I went to Marquette University Journalism School. I went out into the world like my hero, Jack London, so I could experience life and adventure, so I could write about it. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> but <laughs> getting home and being forced to, to remember that. I wanted to forget all the prison, but I was forced to remember it in detail and go through it. And once that process started, it, I, I wanted to quit. I wanted to just leave. But a gentleman named Bill Hoffer, who my agent in New York City, my agent read the first, Julian Bach, my agent read the first 15 pages I'd written the of my story. And he said, well, Billy, this is very good because now we know we'll need to bring in a professional writer. I was like, no, 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 I'm a writer. I'm not. <laughs> he said, listen, your style, he termed it the hysterical subjective, which I loved. He said, to make this <laughs> book work, we need to focus you. So I met a bunch of name writers, some really name writers, most of whom I thought were total douches. But then I met Bill Hoffer. I liked him immediately. And it turns out he was very much like my wife, which is calm and steady, but never gave up. He would never let me squirm away from anything. We, he sat me down in a room and I did a tape recording for about three days. And then we had that all transcribed. That's a humbling experience to read how you speak. See, when it gets, when it gets personal, I go to third person. How I speak with this <laughs> ramble. Unsequitured back and forth. We took all that stuff and then cut it into pieces and sort of arranged it like here's where the book starts, the first chapter, here's where the book ends. Now all we need to do is fill in the middle. And I would write and type stuff out, and then Bill would read it and he'd come back and he'd, he'd say to me, You know, you write something here about blah, 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 but hoisted on my own letters. He said, But in this letter from that date, you say da, 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 not blah, blah, blah. So he would make me, he said, you need to write this as the kid who was locked up in prison, not as the guy who's out and he's a big hero and all this stuff happening to him. That's all bullshit. I need the real emotions. And he saw, and that was terrific for me because I, did, I 
I'm quick and clever. I'd skim over a lot of stuff. He forced me to get down to the reality of what I was feeling and what was really happening. And as a writer, that was a wonderful thing. And it forced us also to get it done quick. The publisher, E.P. Dutton, had told me that uh, if we would make a really good profit on the paperback book and get a better deal if we could get this book out soon. I think he gave us like five months or something, which, you know, a very short period. But it was in the news. It would be good for them. So we wrote nonstop. So instead of forgetting jail, I was writing about it day and night, dreaming about it. I, I wanted to, to stop, but it was so good emotionally to get this stuff up, to get it out. And as this stuff stuck to the page, it sort of came out of me. And that became early therapy, which everyone who I met said, you really need to consider therapy. I said, no, no, I'm fine. I'm good. But I desperately needed therapy. The book was my original therapy. And then that led into acting, an acting class and an acting teacher I had who saw right through me and all, all my bullshit, Eric Morris, that was my real therapy. And that, that kind of wove into my yoga and trying to stay balanced and deal with this new reality. I love being out and free and having all this stuff happening. It was weird. It was strange. But it be prison by a long shot. Wow, that's incredible! What an ins- <laughs> and and ins- and now today, I mean, Billy, you're doing so much. I hear you were in uh, well, you're in Vegas, but you were playing poker. What was up with that? Uh, I was in the World Series of Poker, the main main event. You know, I'm a poker player. I've always been, I've always wanted to play the main event. And uh, a friend of mine runs a company called Hemp Inc., and uh, he sponsored me in this year's World Series. So here you have a guy who was sentenced to life in jail for cannabis being sponsored in the World Series by a legal cannabis company. That's a, <laughs> that's a real sign of the time. I wish I had done better. I made it through the first day into the second day. And early in the afternoon of the second day, I, I, I'll tell you a bad beat poker story, but I hate hearing them, especially when they're coming out of my mouth. It's like, shut up. Nobody wants to hear bad beat stories. <laughs> so I had a really bad beat story, and I got knocked out of the World Series. But I'll be back next year. Do you oh, ever um, do you ever watch, the, you know, Shawshank Redemption, Happy Y'all, your own film, Midnight Express? Do you... Do you do you watch these things? Do you shudder? People befriending um, ants in their cell, being <laughs> no, locked actually, up. I've, you know, I've watched, I've watched the prison movies. I've watched Shawshank and It's based on everything's based on the book. And uh, you know, I, I watched Papillon back in the day, and I, I've seen yeah. virtually all all of the prison films. And uh, Bridge over the River Kwai. Oh yeah! Wow. That's going back a ways. But I love yeah. them when it's well-made film, obviously. The subject matter of prison is one thing. I, there's a couple of shows on, on, on the internet where they inter- interview prisoners, real prisoners, guys who are yeah. in jail, go in jail. But that's a little bit much for me. I don't really want to go that far. And what I discovered in jail, I don't want to sound like a snob, but I, you know, I had a college education. Most guys in jail do not. So when you're talking to people in prison, you have to realize that a lot of them don't know in a basic knowledge level uh, the stuff that you learned in school, stuff that you take for granted that people know about the world in college, particularly in a foreign country. So I had to spend a lot of time sort of adjusting to what they know and so on. Now I have to Mm -hmm. deal with the fact that if people know me, it depends upon 
what iteration of my life they know. If they've just seen right. the movie, they have one idea of who I am. They, if they've just seen the, the courtroom speech in the film, which it was, Oliver Stone wrote that script. Um, he did a brilliant job because he's an amazing filmmaker and he has a tendency to, uh, was it, revisionist history. And in the courtroom speech in real life, when I was being resentenced to life in jail as opposed to going free in 54 days, what I said was, you're going to sentence me to life in prison. I can't agree with you to the court. All I can do is forgive you. What Oliver had me say in the movie is, you're a nation of pigs. I blank your sons. I blank your daughters. First off, <laughs> in reality, you spent a rest sentenced to life in a country, and now you're going to blank the sons and daughters, and they have me kill a guard, which I can do. What I said was, I'm going to forgive you. But the world heard blank your sons and daughters as opposed to forgive you. And right. I've had to live with that. The whole anybody who's seen the movie said, oh, I'll never go to Turkey. It's like, no, no, it's a beautiful I love Turkey. You know, I made three successful hash smuggling trips prior to getting arrested. But I couldn't talk about that. I couldn't write about that just for the legality involved. So mm-hmm. it also come across in the movie. All you saw was my fourth trip in prison, which is a very different view of the country than my first three trips living in Istanbul and traveling the country. And I had a Turkish girlfriend. I loved Istanbul. But that doesn't come across. In fact, quite the opposite. And Turkey went, their tourism dropped 95% when the movie yeah. came out. This day, I've had people say, oh, well, I'll never go to Turkey. I keep telling them, no, you'll love it. Well, now I have problems with the government because they have more journalists in prison than any country in the world. And Erdogan is, is a dictator, as uh, let's not get into politics, but uh, go. It's a beautiful country. Don't get arrested. You won't like the jail. I don't care how well they've adjusted or how, how, how much better they are than they used to be, but you won't like it. I guarantee you. So, Billy, the question remains, why do you believe in people? What else can you do? You have to believe in people. People, uh, love is the center of the universe. You know, we're all the center of our own universes. Well, the center of my universe truly is love. I discovered that's this. I'm holding my chest here. This this energetic that comes out. That's the that's the only truth I really know. Everything else, religion and and rules and you know, Catholic Church and all that kind of stuff. I can I can do without all of that. Love is the only thing I know is true, and that if I am spreading it to the person I'm with to as far out as it can go through a book or a story or anything else spreading that message. That's what I need to be doing. That's, that's my reason for being is to love. And that's the only truth I can really trust. Even in prison. Well, even in prison, the people whose, whose hearts are open, that's who I, I'm attracted to and who I want to spend time with. If they're not, I try not to engage them because that leads to other stuff. Rather just zen them, let them go their own way. If they want to talk about it, they want to argue with me, oh, I'll argue with you as much as you like, especially if you're going to take the side of of, a Bible and religion and bullshit you're talking about that doesn't really translate into life. If you're sending out love, that's what you should be doing. I don't care if you're a mailman or a doctor or a lawyer or an actor. That's that's the only truth I know. And actually, to that point, Billy, on the last note, um Kevin, I want to wish you a very happy anniversary to beautiful Wendy. 42 years. That's incredible. Thank you.
Thanks for being Thank unbelievable so much people, for- Billy. Well, keep doing the good work that you guys do. I do appreciate it. Um, at the end, I'm going to stick this up in case somebody is looking. This is the <laughs> uh, this is the, new, the new book that I have out. This is the fourth in the line of Midnight Express stories that I keep telling. And I hope this one wraps up the whole story. Wonderful. Looking Thank forward you. to reading it. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care, Billy.